You join me in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We know so little about the early life of Jesus from the Gospels. There are no stories about his first steps, no recollection of childhood friends or learning new words. Jesus' first decades of life are contained in a sliver of stories. But the most searing and vicious is found in today's gospel reading from Matthew. The despotic, bloodthirsty tyrant Herod the Great is hunting down a would-be rival. He gets word of this potential threat from these Zoroastrian priests, and these men who have utilized astrological data have predicted a new sovereign. We do know quite a bit about the Herod in the story. He was savage toward his enemies and he turned on his friends. Herod used murder and political intrigue to advance his power and harness control. He was tormented by paranoia. And while we don't have any corroborating records of this massacre of Jewish children, this narrative fits squarely within what we know about the character of Herod. And now Jesus and his parents, Mary and Joseph, they're on the run. Warned in a dream, they flee this genocide. And they return to Egypt. This is a reversal of the exodus. Now the promised one looks to Egypt for safety, just as the Hebrew people looked for safety from God as they escaped slavery in Egypt. Throughout this story, Matthew weaves together prophetic announcements about the Messiah. But where are all the other stories about little Jesus? Last year, a few of us gathered for a Sunday school class that revolved about around questions like this from the Bible and about our faith. In our group, we, were, we got quite a few questions about how we got the Bible before us today. Who decided on these particular stories? Who wrote them down? How did we end up reading these and not other narratives about Jesus and Judas and Mary that were all circulating in these early centuries? I thought about those questions that we asked during this week as I read the story again, where we meet Jesus at his most vulnerable. The deadliest and most efficient killer of the day is pursuing him with absolute authority and unlimited resources, willing to do whatever it takes to extinguish his life. He leaves in his wake the blood-curdling screams of parents and siblings and grandparents and friends. This Jesus who is unable to feed himself, who cannot run to safety on his own legs, who is entirely dependent upon others. In the apocryphal gospels, 
the narratives about Jesus that didn't make it into our Bible, there are actually lots of stories about Jesus in his early years. I have a couple favorites. There's a time when five-year-old Jesus is caught making clay birds out of mud on the Sabbath, and he gets in trouble with Joseph because this is violating a Sabbath prohibition. So Jesus turns the clay birds into real birds and they fly away. There's another time where he miraculously saves his brother from a deadly snake bite. But this Jesus is also dangerous and unpredictable. Imagine all the things that happen when you give divine power to a child. Jesus strikes down another kid who bumps into him while they're in a race together. And in another scene in these apocryphal stories, the freshly newborn Jesus overhears a woman questioning his miraculous birth, and he withers her hand on the spot. There is none of this in our Gospels. None. Instead, there is danger in Bethlehem. Jesus flees on the back of his mother, barely escaping genocide. Warned only by a dream, Joseph takes his family and runs. Jesus becomes one of the masses of people who attempt an escape from the violence and destruction brought about by tyrannical rulers. You all know them. You have seen them. You have seen him in his mother's arm in a rubber boat sinking off the coast of Greece. You have seen him on his father's back at 2 a.m. in the desert as a coyote tells them to run. You have seen her. She is held by her sister in a wire cage in El Paso, Texas. You have seen her strapped to her brother's body as they run from their burning Tigre village. This is not a new story. It is one that is told over and over in history. In every generation, there are people who cling to the ledge of existence. They scrape and they fight and they flee and usually they die. And beloved, this this life is the life that God chooses. Freely and without coercion. It is exactly at this point where God enters into human existence. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that this is actually the scandal of God becoming flesh. It is that God makes a particular life among this particular vulnerability. Jesus renounces the power to turn over our world with fire or force. Jesus empties himself of a life of wealth or influence. Instead, he puts his body in the hands of two frightened teenagers who listen to a dream and barely outrun swords. They become migrants and refugees. They become strangers and foreigners. 
those apocryphal stories of baby Jesus zapping his foes and exercising power over them, that's the part that they miss. That's why they don't end up in our Bible today. The mystery of the incarnation is not that an omnipotent God somehow manages to squeeze into an earthly human life. Instead, in these weeks, we celebrate the utter vulnerability of God in the flesh, the life that makes his life in the most wretched corner of existence. Uh, it was cold on Christmas Eve. It was one of the most frigid nights that we've had here in Raleigh. I was walking out to my car, talking about this piercing cold with a parent from our church. She told me that when their family arrived for worship, there were some men sitting out on the stoop outside the church. And her, her daughter got upset. How could these people just sleep outside tonight? Why don't we open the door for them? Please open the door. We have to do something. This doesn't make any sense. What will happen to them? She grew more upset, desperate for an answer to these questions. And she refused to be consoled by the many good reasons that this couldn't happen. First of which is that we don't own this building. I wanted to rationalize that away, um, but it's a memory that has haunted me this week because that is the incarnation. It is a God who says, I am opening the door and I will sleep here beside you tonight. But unlike us, there is nothing that stands between him and the other. It turns out that what it means to be God is actually what it means to be perfectly human, to love without a limit of reason, for Jesus' whole being to be in solidarity with others. Um, it's not so easy for me. I don't think it's easy for the rest of us because we are plagued by our longings for security and rule-keeping. And so we see the incarnation as this invitation. We are invited to get into God's stuff. We are invited into a perfectly human life, just as Jesus was perfectly human, to love beyond what makes sense. And to be fully human means that we also put our lives among the most wretched around us, refusing all the good reasons we cut up, come up with for cutting ourselves off and putting ourselves out of the way. This terrifying story interrupts the season where perhaps we have tried to stave off the realities of our world. Last week, I heard on the news that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin was utilizing American distraction from the warm feelings of the holidays to visit new horrors upon the Ukrainian people. And so maybe in the midst of tinsel and candlelight, this gospel visits us to break into our lives with a blood-curdling scream 
Rachel weeps for her children are no more. Despotic rulers and technocratic overlords follow their whims and the most vulnerable are always left in the ruins. And so often those victims are children. It is the most common story in history, one that stretches across generations and space and time. And in this particular place, among these children, God chooses to be with us. God chooses to be known to us in the body of a human baby fleeing in the night. This story at the beginning of Jesus' life will form the whole rest of the story. Jesus will be pursued for his entire life. He will keep putting his body among the lowly and the poor, even when he's warned of the consequences. And finally, he'll get swept up in the current of violence he manages to escape in these first tender years. He will face the fate of criminals and insurrectionists. And then he will be raised as he raises us from the dead. Amen.